Let me introduce you. Let me introduce you. Hey, everybody, welcome to Let Me Introduce You. This is our second episode. Woo! Woohoo! <laughs> we made it. We, We've made it. <laughs> we're in. <laughs> and we are three friends who went to film school together. We've known each other for 18 years. We have tons of fun experiences together, share loads in common, except for our taste in movies. So we are happy to have you join us as we discuss a new movie for two of us mm. and an old hat movie for one of us. This week we are talking about movies you've seen more than anything else. And I am joined by the wonderful Graham Feth. Hello. I've had three I'm... Aperol spritz, so I'm ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> he is ready to I'm ready. party. <laughs> And that is our other co-host, the lovely Miss Ashley Crone. Hey, y'all. How you doing? And as I said this week, we will be talking about movies you've seen more than anything else. And I was very lucky to introduce both of these two for the first time to the joy that is Hellraiser. The joy of Hellraiser. Okay. (laughs) It is a joy. So movies you've seen more than anything else. Last week, we talked about Graham's love of Troop Beverly Hills. This week, it was my decision, and I have seen Hellraiser, I think, a million times. It is my comfort food movie, which I know you guys are looking at me. You can't see the Zoom video, Graham. <laughs> I know. But you look nuts, which is fine, because I realize, I, you know, as I'm re-watching it, I'm like, oh, God, they're going to hate me. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited to talk about this. Absolutely. Good. Absolutely. Wonderful. So, a little bit about this movie. Hellraiser is an adaptation of the amazing Clive Barker's 1986 novella, The Hellbound Heart, a title which was deemed too romantic for this film. So, Clive Barker suggested sadomasochists from beyond the grave, of course, which was... Works. Absolutely works. I think it works a little on (laughs) the nose. Oh, oh, wait for this. You know what you're getting. <laughs> yeah, the, the studio rejected that title for being too blatantly sexualized. So a 60-year-old female member of the production team suggested instead what a woman will do for a good fuck, <laughs> which is kind of the perfect I mean, title for this And film. that's a, st- a tale as old as time, really. <laughs> Honestly. The things I've done for a good fuck, I swear. I mean... <laughs> That's for so, a different podcast. <laughs> this is Clive Barker's directorial debut. He actually had to go to the library to take a book out on how to direct. And we're paired with producer Chris Fig, who would later go on to produce 2018's Mandy. Mm-hmm. And 2011's We Need to Talk About Kevin. Okay. This is by New World Pictures, who agreed to fund the film straight to video for $900,000, although it did get a theatrical release. They were basically looking for a project that'd be shot under a million in one house with some monsters and unknown actors. So let's dive in. Ashley, would you mind giving us just a, a real quick rundown synopsis of Hellraiser? Yeah, okay. Basically, Man Opens Box comes back to life manipulates his brother's wife who is his lover to resurrect him by killing people 
the daughter figures it out, goes on some weird trippy thing, and then ultimately she saves the world, but not her father or Julia or her Uncle Frank. No, because they're all horrible. Well, I mean, except for Larry. Yeah. Julia and Frank are kind of terrible. Larry was so boring. And it ends at the beginning, essentially, Mm -hmm. with someone else receiving this box. Was it someone else? Or was it Frank? I was like, it is was, it just it was someone else? I don't know. Graham, do you have any first impressions? So, first impressions. I, I love how we go from True Beverly Hills to this, where <laughs> in the very first scene, someone's body is ripped apart. Thanks, Katie. You're welcome. I made sure to watch this at 2 p.m. in the afternoon because I can't handle gore, can't handle lot of like horror and violence so i needed it to be light outside so yeah very i I think ashley nailed it on the head just creepy creepy story manipulation cenobites i thought were going to be a much larger part of this movie than Mm -hmm. what it ended up to being but all in all a kind of an unpleasant experience oh no (laughs) <laughs> but I am grateful that I saw it. <laughs> oh, good. Well, I chose this movie because the best way I can describe it is like my comfort food movie. So I love practical special effects. I love horror. And it's one of those movies, if I'm in a shitty mood or I don't want to think, I just want to watch something, then I'll put this on. Ashley was mentioning in the last episode a bit about I not being able to remember mm. the first time that you've seen something. Mm. And I almost felt bad because I think in the last episode I said my dad must have showed me it and then re-watching it in preparation for this podcast, I'm like, oh my God, I hope my dad didn't. Uh, I hope not. <laughs> but it's very possible because I remember him talking to me about the effect scene where Frank is originally resurrected. Yep. So I can't remember the first time I saw it, but I know that every time I'm feeling down or every time I just want something fun and I love Julia so much... I just I put this on and what, uh, what? and what? Yeah. why do I love Julia? Katie, she's... I'm sorry. This okay. Is it like an let's anti-hero just, thing? Uh, I think we need to just also lay the groundwork that if we ever watch a movie that we completely disagree with each other on, that's fine. Our friendship is good. Oh yeah, we're, <laughs> yeah, that's fine. That's fine. But for you to describe this as a comfort movie that you return to is and having seen it, I'm like, what? I know. I was like. <laughs> I'm going to let you guys into my brain too much. But, We're there, you know. and I, I have questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? Let's dive in, then. Yeah, let's dive in. So, the film opens, and I just want to talk about the soundtrack real quick. Mm, mm-hmm. I loved it. I loved it. I actually really liked it. Yeah. it's great. It was a really good soundtrack, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Makes sense. The guy who did it, his name is Christopher Young. He also composed for Nightmare on Elm Street 2, mm-hmm. Freddy's Revenge, Species, Urban Legend, The Grudge, Drag Me to Hell, Sinister, I mean, 2019's Pet Cemetery. Yeah. He also composed soundtrack for Rounders, Ghost Rider, Spider-Man 3. He knows what Wait, he's doing. PBS Ghost Rider or Ghost Rider? No, R- oh, okay. <laughs> Rider, not Rider. Ghost Rider! Good one, Graham. And it's funny because actually Christopher Young came in and redid the whole soundtrack. It was originally written by a band called Coil, but for some reason they totally ditched that. Mm. Much like Frank's dialogue is all dubbed. That is not Sean Chapman's voice. So this was a British production, right? Correct. So this was a British production. I believe it was shot in Britain. Okay. And that's why it looks kind of weird. Britain's weird. But they want it... 
I know, right? His, like, two of us who have lived there. That actually yeah. makes sense now. I was like, wait, that's not a lock you normally see in the U.S. Yeah. I love how I just assumed yes. it was the U.S. A well, lock? Uh, they, they rebranded it so it would be the U.S. so it would connect more with American audiences. I mean, they do diss Brooklyn in the first ten minutes, so... Which was rude. <laughs> I was like, hey! <laughs> <laughs> so we opened with Frank Cotton acquiring this puzzle box. Mm-hmm. And the puzzle box is also called the La- Lament configuration, also known as Lamar Chan's box. Mm-hmm. And later films in the series go into the creation of the box and all that. But yeah. that's essentially what it's called. And we're introduced to Frank, like I said, Sean Chapman, who is supposed to be the sex bad boy. I, uh, <laughs> I... again. Graham's face, I wish I, we could I'm have, sorry, like, this moments. is not a visual medium, but sexy, <laughs> did you look at his fingernails in that first scene? Those are I the know. dirtiest fingernails I've ever seen. You do seen. not want those He's on nor inside you. I don't want those, no, that's, exactly. That's Julia does. Julia well, does. Well, I mean, but sexy, okay, so sexy, <laughs> sexy bad boy. <laughs> sexy bad boy Frank, played by Sean Chapman, who has not done much film after this the actor who plays larry andrew robinson was really the only one who did significant television work or any work after this mm-hmm. but yeah sean chapman did a lot of television but his voice was completely dubbed this whole movie and yeah so we get the lament configuration aka the puzzle box aka lamar chance box and the concept of a cube being used as a portal to hell has its basis in urban legend it's been around forever mm-hmm. you've got the yantra from tantric traditions of hinduism got Rubik's Cubes, you've got the Tesseract from Marvel's Avengers, all cubes that are sources of power. Yeah, I wrote down scary Rubik's Cube. That was my... <laughs> Man rece- I was like, box looks fun! That's like, my- that was my first note. This box looks so fun. Oh wait, it's evil. <laughs> yeah, so you can tell like, Frank's had a hard life, he's on the search for the ultimate in sexual pleasure, and he opens the box. And then some hooks go into his flesh, which is not the best effects, but that's fine. It was quick. It was very quick. You couldn't really tell what was happening. Yeah. So what did you guys think? Because that was the first bit of gore that you see is those hooks kind of going into Frank's skin. Was it preparing you for what was to come? Or were you expecting, like, this is the level of effects to come? It was so quick that I was like, oh, okay, so this is going to be, it kind of reminded me a bit of, this, this film came much later, which is The Cell. Yeah, yeah, The Cell is great. And that scene with the hooks in the back of that character, which I couldn't stand, it, it reminded me of that. But yeah, it was so quick that I couldn't really register what was going on. I thought that opening part was really interesting in, in how it set up this mystery and like this ambiance of dread that I felt kind of permeated through most of the movie. But yeah, I, I was like, okay, ooh, this is going to be gory. Absolutely. I knew that that was something that I was going to get. That, that's get true. Especially because then we see what eventually happens to Frank in this opening scene. He is ripped apart piece by piece. We get our first shot of the female Cenobite, just, just a glance, as well as the lead mm. Cenobite, which would later be affectionately mm-hmm. referred to as Pinhead. 
but he was not called that in either the book or this film. I will say, so thinking about that beginning and looking at my like furiously scribbled notes, I really did dig the music. The sound is really well done. It definitely felt like old school horror. It felt very of its time, the way that it was filmed, like late 80s of that genre, which I've experienced a lot more watching those with Bob. I did write Dirty Nails, question mark. Um, <laughs> I, I I could not I mean, get the over that. The nails were really it gross, but disgusting. then the next note was there was like a close-up to his face and his beard, and I'm embarrassed that I didn't remember this, but I did write, good lord, I'd do him. <laughs> so initially, I mean, just give me a good beard, and I'm in. And then later, I was like, oh, yeah, no, I'm not into Frank. But I could do more than that. The first instance of special effect, you know, like, yeah, the hooks weren't the best thing I've ever seen. But seeing the other Cenobites and as the rest of the film went on, I said, I totally get why Katie likes this. And it, I feel like it gave me a really good insight mm -hmm. into how you really got into special effects, makeup and everything else. And I was like, oh, my God, this this was the beginning you know, and so, and yeah. throughout the rest of the film, like, holy shit, these special effects are actually really good. It made me think a little bit about an American werewolf in London. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. Bob telling me about, like, oh, it was so mm -hmm. revolutionary, like, so well done at the time. And I was still even really impressed about, you know, everything's CGI these days, everything's computer generated, but the artistry and yeah. the ways that in some of the special effects, you know that they're being filmed in reverse and then being yep. run forward. And I was like, oh God, it, it really made me get into like the art mm. of doing horror well. Yay! Yeah. Hearing you guys say that makes me so happy because yeah. then I'm like, one, I'm not crazy. Yeah. Two, you, you guys see exactly what I think about. I mean, I think there are elements of, the, of you liking this movie that are crazy. Thank, but, thanks, thank you. But to Ashley's point, there are certain shots of practical effects in this that are like, wow, I have not seen anything like that. I'm thinking specifically about a beating heart that, that happens when he's begun to be regenerated. Yeah. And it's like, this is cool stuff. And to know from your from what you told us that it was made for nothing, mm -hmm. that even makes it even more impressive in my book. That particular regeneration scene is one of my all-time favorites, like, across horror. So, but we'll we'll get to that and introduce the team responsible for it. But Frank is decimated and the Cenobites go away and yada, yada, yada. And now we get Julia. And Julia is fantastic. I love, I feel like I love Julia for a lot of the same reasons that you love. What? Shelly Shelley Long? Long. <laughs> because I love the <laughs> hair. I love the makeup. I love the attitude. I love, they are like, they are both redheads in these films. They are both redheads. <laughs> Julia is sassy. Okay, I She's claim neither up. of them as redheads. I mean, okay, I claim Shelley Long as a redhead, but I do not claim Julia as a redhead. Oh, she's probably Resident not. redhead. Listeners, <laughs> as a reminder, Ashley is a redhead. Yes, visual reminder. <laughs> she believes she's meant for better than she has. She's real prissy. I just, I, I love Julia, played by the wonderful Claire Higgins who was mostly a television actress. She had uh, a role on EastEnders. Mm -hmm. She hasn't done too much. She does reprise her amazing role in the sequel. But yeah, we get the fantastic and always styling Julia. And we get her husband, Larry, played by Andrew Robinson, who might be best known as the Cardassian Garak on Deep Space Nine. I thought you said Kardashian. I know, I me like, too. He's not Kardashian. <laughs> he, he, uh, it, no, the race of aliens is called Kardashian. Okay. He's Kim's Nerd. uncle. Um, it's spelled with a C, not a K. Yeah. 
And we learn that this is kind of a second chance for Larry and Julia. They're having difficulties, and by moving out of Brooklyn into this old house that belonged to Larry and Frank's parents, hopefully they're headed for a fresh start. But there are signs of Frank everywhere. And it just kind of... You mean his tattered mattress with his... <laughs> I mean, his, like, the... Porno photos of his yes. various women. Those were uh, real prostitutes, by the way. What? Mm-hmm. Those were real hookers that they had the okay. Sean Chapman take photos with. Wow. Sex yes. workers know what they're doing. So I want to touch upon Julia for a second. Yes, please. I feel like the background you just gave of her is not what the movie gives us. <laughs> Okay, go ahead. Why? You're like, she's unhappy, and she's looking for, like, a new life, and she's static. I'm like, I, it's not really shown. She's just shown as really icy and aloof. And you see Larry, who I liked. I liked Larry. Oh, sure. He's he's very sweet. I thought he was a lovely character, and I just felt for him. I'm I'm um, literally yawning as you talk about Larry. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) stop. Well, he, he's just doing this, the best he can. Just doing the best he can with <laughs> mom and dad's money. I never exactly. understood well, you know. why Larry married Julia. I mean, like, in the flashbacks, you'll get that Julia looked like a more human person before she had sex with Frank. Before he inhaled her chin with his mouth yes. and that sex. I was like, <laughs> I had to re... So basically, in a flashback, we find out that, that she and Frank had this affair. And, like, the seduction scene between the two of them is so off the charts. It's so gross. It's so gross. And when he grabs her and he actually inhales her chin, basically. Am I wrong? I never noticed that. the first that, thing but, he you know, kisses. Maybe. But he's like, <laughs> like, <"Dude." laughs> and I was like, what is happening? Maybe he was hungry. I don't know. I mean, hungry for sex. Oh, yeah. You get this introduction to a bit more about Frank kind of introducing his character through his brother. You get a lot of this symbolism between Catholicism versus sexuality, the way he lives versus the way Larry lives. But we're going to learn they might not be so different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then we're introduced to Kirstie. And yeah. Kirstie is a very strange final girl. Played by Ashley Lawrence. This was her first role. And she has done almost nothing since. Jennifer Tilly audition for this role as well i mean when you that would have been i thought christy was wait kirstie or christy i thought she was really weak oh yeah she's uh, she's not i great. i was like and the acting was really mm. stiff and it kind of took me out of it a lot and to know that it could have been jennifer tilly like wow that would have been that would have added some oomph to this i would have had a hard time with jennifer tilly's voice in this though yeah that's true i love it <laughs> Kirsty is also in the sequel. Her acting is about the same. So okay. here's <laughs> here's like kind of my take on Frank is I see him as this spoiled man child. I imagine he was the younger brother, and I don't know if we explicitly hear that. But like I just see him as this younger brother coming from a moneyed family and he didn't want to do what was expected of him. So he got into risk taking and danger and sex and whatever else, you know, and I just want to be like, Frank, how much of that is really you? And how much of that (laughs) is you just desperately trying to have some sort of a personality? I think he's actually really dissatisfied with life. And so he just keeps going to this next level until it literally consumes him. Mm-hmm. It tears him apart. It sure does. Good, good job, Graham. I will say when he was at, when they do the flashback of when Julia and Frank meet and he's at the door and it's raining, I'm like, okay, that's kind of hard. <laughs> like, he's like, 
Mainly because he's wet, and I'm like, I bet his fingernails are clean. <laughs> <laughs> One of my things is I love a good clean fingernail. I love it. So gross. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We get a bit that Kirstie doesn't really like Julia, her stepmother, and that Kirstie's real mother is dead. And the feeling is mutual. Julia also doesn't seem to be able to stand Kirstie or Larry. She seems kind of fed up mm. with everybody. I mean, once you've had a taste of Frank, you can't go back. Once someone has held you to knife point and fucked you real good, everything else feels meaningless. I've, God, where, what have I been doing wrong all of these years of life? This message brought to you by the letter A. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely getting that explicit rating. Oh my God. But yeah, so then we get into their backstory and I never really understood. I mean, I guess Graham, you said it is just like, he looks hot, but Frank shows up and Julia seems like this ethereal happy lady. And I don't know why she lets Frank have sex with her, but she seems super into it. And it's, it's a, it's a sex scene. It is. They actually had to cut some of the thrusting to avoid an X rating. I love, I love that point. I saw that point too, Katie. And it's like, you're cut. It was like they were allowed two thrusts of the butt, right? <laughs> yes. And they, if thrusts. you had three, if you had three, it was an X rating. But meanwhile, we're going to show someone's head get bashed in with a hammer four times in this movie. <laughs> that's, that's true. So it's a bit about what American, America. Yeah, Americans. Mm. Yes. Puritan only colonialists. <laughs> but that whole sequence was really intriguing. I was like, okay. Because Katie, when, when we first meet Julia, as your point, like she's like, dressed differently her hair looks different mm -hmm. and then after that it's like a more sleek hairstyle more heightened makeup i felt mm -hmm. it's all from her frank took her innocence took the innocence mm. of never having sex like that before i guess her innocence and her mullet it happens because that's that's what it yeah was. thank and thank god thank god <laughs> <laughs> and it, yeah it completely changes julia she turns into this needy person frank is the only one for her she becomes completely attached and it gets a bit of a like we kind of understand a bit more about larry is never able to satisfy her in that way maybe that's why she's so icy because she hasn't been able to get that good bone in i mean he hasn't fear fucked her you know there's a, no, there's a fine sure. line between fear and pleasure and... which we learn from this movie we sure do so anyway we see that it's moving day and oddly enough the man who will play the lead Cenobite, Doug Bradley, who everybody knows as Pinhead, he had the choice between playing Pinhead or playing one of the moving guys that is gross and checking out Kiersey. And he almost chose the moving man because people would see his face. But luckily for all of us, he chose to play Pinhead in this and seven additional subsequent Hellraiser films. Get that check. Yeah. So Larry is helping move the mattress in. Julie is doing nothing because why would she lift a manicured fingernail? Mm. And Larry gets cut in a very pathetic way. Well, how is that pathetic? Because he got cut on a nail. That's true. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I more meant his reaction was being pathetic because he's like, I can't. Oh, look. I can't even look at it. Julia. I can well, walk up two flights of stairs. arm was ripped open. His hand. He got a cut in his hand. Okay, I relate to Larry because I got a got a cut a couple weeks ago and I wouldn't shut up about it for four like days. Like a paper so, cutter. Like, yes. I was like, oh. <laughs> I like basically held it in front of Brandon. I was like, fix me. Well, Larry goes upstairs to Julia who is reminiscing about all the hot sex she missed having with Frank. And some of the blood falls onto the floor of the same room that Frank was torn apart by the Cenobites. And that blood 
helps to revive his brother. So we were talking a bit earlier about this amazing, amazing special effects moment by Bob Keen, who did this particular resurrection scene. Bob Keen also did some work on Star Wars, and it always kind of reminded me of like a Cronenberg, like the fly mm. kind of mm-hmm. way, mm-hmm. but it kind of feels like it's all its own. And yeah, when I was a kid and I first saw this, or whenever I first saw this, it was the moment I, we would always talk about with my dad, where it's like, oh man, did you see this reanimation and, you know, the reverse filming and how it yeah. all came together? It just, it's one of the best things in terms of practical special effects, and it's one of the things that made me want to do it for a living, even though I only did it for a little bit, but... Yeah, it is a pretty incredible sequence. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad. I was worried that would be the part that grossed you guys out, to be honest. No, because there's definitely stuff later okay, that grossed me yeah. out. So some of the other films that I worked on where we had to do like, skeletons and innards and intestines and stuff, like it was all made out of latex and we would spray the latex on pipes and then just kind mm. of paint them and uh, it was a lot of sculpting. This was like that in addition to almost like a stop motion animation. It was basically everything that I wanted to make. Yeah. <laughs> it's super, it was super gross, but I was like, yep, this is a Katie movie, I guess. Yay! It. It's, <laughs> As Ashley mentioned earlier, I'm like, yep. It's mm-hmm, a good mm-hmm, litmus mm-hmm, test mm-hmm. for any boyfriends that I have, because then I make them watch and be like, if you can't handle this, you can't handle me, goodbye. <laughs> this is why we never dated Katie. <laughs> yeah, that, that's it's why. the one reason. That's the only reason. reason you and I never yep. But Katie, I guess why Larry's blood? Why did that? Why did that help bring Frank back? Could it have, could it have been anyone's blood? I think it could have been anyone's blood because, as we'll see, Frank. Oh shit! No, yeah. Yeah, Frank will start needing the blood of random Johns that Julia is going to get for him to kind of add those additional layers of life to him and bring and bring Frank essentially back from hell. But he was never truly resurrected. He was never truly back until he got all of Larry's blood. So I think I think there needed to be that familial blood sacrifice in order to initiate it to begin with. Right? Mm. I think I think it had to be it had to be Larry's because and also when okay. you think about the way when a film is crafted it's it's creating the world as it needs to be, right? So if it could have been anyone else's blood, it would have, right? But mm. Clive Barker makes that specific choice that it has to be Larry's, you know? And mm. then when he finally, you know, ends up coming back, spoiler alert, ends up coming back as Larry, but really himself, it's like the true blaming of not only his resurrection, but just taking everything Larry had, which also could interplay with that younger brother. You always got to do whatever, and you always kind of acted like yeah. my dad. And so it gets into this real, not totally like Oedipus, but just kill your brother, blah, blah, mm. can't enable. I don't know. <laughs> All right, film school. I went to well, film school, it. guys. Yeah. Remember? So I'm-, I'm digging that reading, Ashley. I See, dig it. I was wondering if... So if Frank didn't get Larry's skin, if he sucked the blood out of enough randos, would he come back looking like Frank? Mm. That is something I've never really, I've never really figured out. Like we do see Frank in hell eventually, but it was something I was, I was never sure. So we start to get into this arrangement. So Julia is again, just being pissy and having a dinner party where she clearly is not feeling it. She goes upstairs to escape her, you know, idiot stepdaughter and idiot husband and runs into the zombie version of Frank. 
and Julia, so creepy, being the totally hard up lady that she is, agrees to help him, even though he's like, "Don't look at me." And she's like, "I'm going. I'm going. I'm gonna." <laughs> but it's all she can think about because she promised to do anything for him. Yeah, and at that point, he is really just bones and like a layer of skin. Yes. Yeah, which which. I mean, oh, I can't even imagine being in a in a dark room and encountering that. Like, oh my god, so scary. But it was it like was that someone scene. that all you can think about is this guy. Like yeah. he consumes all of your thoughts and you see him and you're like, "Oh god, he needs my help, but he's gross. Mm-hmm. But I want to mm-hmm. do him." So It's just this like really yeah. weird fucked up like slightly abusive relationship dynamic where you can clearly see the fear in her eyes. Like she is very much afraid of Frank like he is but she's also afraid of what Frank can do. And again, it is that razor edge between fear and pleasure. I'd be interested to know, what do you think Frank thinks about Julia? She's a means to an end for him, I think. He was in this hellscape because of the box. He wanted to get out. He knows that he needs human sacrifice, essentially, to become whole again. And he knows that he can use her to make that happen. It's very true. It's a lot of ga- yeah. a lot of gaslighting. A lot, a lot of, of gaslighting. Gas and and she's going to be like, mm-hmm, yep, we'll do. Yep, we'll I'm going to put my star earrings on, and I'm going to do my hair real good, and uh, yeah. I'm going to get them in for you. I'm going to get that inch of eyeshadow on. So can we talk about the three men that she brings home, essentially? Yes, yes. Because I, I, I liked the three, quote-unquote, stories that the three of them told, basically. Yes, so we start with the first one, which I categorize mm-hmm. as Julia's yellow outfit. Stunning. <laughs> I know, right? Stunning. Beautiful. I was like, this is a great... I was like, ooh, that is cute. <laughs> <laughs> She's got yellow, bright yellow shirt, matching eye makeup, star earrings. It's just pure perfection. Yep. She's ready to pick up some sorry, lonely man with her sunglasses and her cigarette in the middle of the day. Yeah. So yeah, Graham, what, what do you think about, as I wrote so, down, the first dickwad that she brought home? Yeah, the first dickwad. So I knew what was going to happen, and I was like, oh, this poor guy... And then he forced himself on mm-hmm. And I was like, no, he needs to die. Like, I don't care. Yeah. He needs to die. Deserved he it. needs to die. And the whole scene where she brings him upstairs to the room, locks the door behind him, and he thinks they're going to get it on. Honestly, like, if someone brought me into a room like that, I'm like, actually, I'm going to leave. <laughs> um, there's no nothing in here. But, but he was like, he didn't care. No, he had a mission. And he had a mission. And then she murders him. And... Uh, I was like, okay, fine. Yeah. I was like, oh, she's going to pick, like, just asshole men to kill. <laughs> and for that scene, I was like, that's justified. And then seeing then from there, like, what happens when she brings someone home to sacrifice to Frank. I was like, oh, interesting what they're doing with the makeup, with his body. Mm-hmm. Okay, now I'm kind of getting what his mission is here. That's right. So you have Julia brings home the first man who is a total jerk, totally deserves to die. He's wearing those dumb tidy whities and it's Julia's first kill. So I, first of all, I'm always really sad that Julia ruined that yellow outfit, but. I was, and then she, oh yeah, I agree. But I love <laughs> the look on her face as she's in the bathroom, scrubbing the blood off of her chest and her face and realizing she's like, I'm in, I'm in now. I'm, I'm, I'm in. I, I can't do nothing else. I've already killed someone. I'm in. Yeah. And now that we've killed the first man, we have Frank with muscles which is an amazingly gloopy makeup job. Mm-hmm. And we get our first very important line that this movie's known for, which is, come to daddy. Ugh. 
<laughs> uh, I just like have such you a were both visceral reaction to that phrase. It was so gross. I was like, that is gross. I don't like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's only going to get grosser I as, know. as the movie goes on. And so we get Skinless Frank, played by Oliver Smith, who himself was extremely skeletal. He was also a chain smoker, so that's why they kind of had Frank doing a lot of that smoking in the skinless Frank costume. They wanted him to look as skinny as possible, even with layers and layers of makeup on. But one thing we did kind of lose track of is Kirstie's storyline. One, because it's boring. But two... Accurate, yeah. I know. We see Kirstie a little bit before. She's working in a pet store, and she runs into this homeless guy eating crickets. Oh. Did you guys know who that homeless guy... Like, did what did you guys think of when you first saw that scene? Well, he he was in the subway, like, watching them, right? Or no, they were walking yep. towards the subway, and he was kind of, like, mm-hmm. following her. Mm-hmm. And I think it was just, yeah, another creepy, creepy something. Something's yeah. gonna happen with this, because otherwise, why would we be seeing this yeah. character? But, oh my god, the eating of the crickets. They look delicious. <laughs> Only they were covered in chocolate. <laughs> I couldn't get over how rude that woman was being to her at the pet store. <laughs> well, that homeless guy is known as the creeper. and Or, mm-hmm. excuse me, not the creeper. The keeper. My, D, mm-hmm. my DC nonsense coming back into my mouth. Okay, Freudian flip. <laughs> we will get a lot about his role and his importance a bit later. Yeah. But then there's also Kirstie in that milk toast guy. I don't know if he was dubbed, but it looks like a British guy that is just speaking in an American accent. But I always had that thought too. I was like, Kirstie, you could do better, even though you're boring. But like, do they know each other before the dinner party where they they show them at? And then why are they sleeping in separate beds at her apartment? I don't know. I, like what kind of romance because Kirstie can't die. She has to remain a virgin to live. Come on, don't you know the rules of horror? Oh my god! I'm so sorry. Well, I don't watch horror, so this. I mean, we should at some point go over the rules of horror. Although I don't think this film. So Hellraiser is part of that 1980s horror canon, but it doesn't get the same respect that films like Halloween or Nightmare on Elm Street or Friday the Thirteenth get, which I am always super Mm -hmm. bummed by because it's got the great soundtrack, it's got a good movie, it's got a hook. (laughs) I made a joke. (laughs) <laughs> oh god and then kirstie has that nightmare with the baby crying which is super duper unnerving and makes very little sense i didn't get that yeah i did not get that scene at all yeah that's because um, it was weird it plays into one of the more creepier moments in the second movie but yeah i i, I had the same as you i was always curious why kirstie yeah. went on with that dork love because is love as women we're not socialized to know our worth and we settle for less than is that why they slept in separate beds that's, that's also because she's a that and she had to be a virgin. <laughs> <laughs> Larry is her is her dad. That's why. That's that's her so model. <laughs> so anyway, back to Frank and Julia. Frank once again lies to Julia, telling her they're tied together. Ironically, asking her, "You won't cheat me, will you?" Mm. You know, when you never believe a word that Frank says. You yeah. know, Frank is out of there the first chance he gets. He's on the run from the Cenobites, but Julia, she's in it until the end. For better or worse, like mm-hmm. love, only real. That's uh, I know, right? Real. God. <laughs> but I think a point that I'd like to make is this is a slow-paced mm-hmm. movie mm-hmm. up until yeah. the first kill. It takes 40 minutes of an hour-and-a-half movie for there really to be action, action, action happening in this. Because it's almost like this is in a dreamlike state 
or dreamer nightmare <laughs> if you will just like some of the shots seem very like drifty and the lighting makes it seem like it's very dreamlike so i thought wow if it was made today it'd be like action 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 whereas this takes plenty of time to build that tension i don't know the screen time of the centibites themselves but it's not a whole lot maybe like 15 20 minutes so yeah. oh yeah so we get julia's second kill she seems more comfortable with it her hair is still flawless and perfect she's got white on now and yeah frank's getting his taste back his nerve endings back but yeah so the, the guy she kills second like i don't there, there's not much no. to him i mean he's just killed but they, I love the shot of her afterwards, after she's mm-hmm. killed him. And she's sitting maybe in her living room in that white outfit, drinking brandy or whatever it is. And it's, her face is mm-hmm. blank. And the camera just follows her face. And then it suddenly becomes this smirk at the mm-hmm. very end. Which I was like, okay, she's liking yeah. this. Two down. I really like what's happening right now. Like she's almost liking the power that she's taking over these guys with the intention of helping Frank, but like she herself is liking this side of herself. It's so great. I love Julia so much. She was winning me yeah, over. She is. <laughs> um, yeah, she is. And we, we, we get a bit more too about Frank's motivations as he's, he tells Julia about the lament configuration, which, you know, this experience beyond limits, Pain and pleasure indivisible. And we first hear about the Cenobites. Yes. Yes. So now we're introduced to the Cenobites. When you guys first saw the Cenobites, you saw all of them. What did you think? Like, what kind of were your impressions of them? I wanted much more of them. I was like, I want to know everything about them. Because they're all very different. You've got the chattering one. The woman with the her neck opened, mm-hmm. essentially. One that looks like a slug. And then Pinhead... And I was like, this is, this is what I'm here for. This is what I want to know much more about. So I guess it's, like, it's almost like Jaws. You only see bits and pieces of mm-hmm. them. You're building this mystery and tension about who they are. So I liked that part of it, too, because it's giving you just a yes. bit more for us to, to whet our appetite. What was so interesting to me is I'm a person who, even though I watch a lot of TV and I've watched a lot of movies, I will also not know where cultural references come from so when i was seeing all of the cenobites i was like oh that's where that comes from because i have seen it referenced (laughs) in so many other things and so it was really satisfying to be like oh okay oh well that see that's so funny like i wonder what it would have been like watching this before you knew anything about the cenobites or pinhead or anything like that or knowing the cultural lexicon that they're a part of because you do start watching the movie and you're like waiting for them to show up. Mm-hmm. And I think Frank is starting to go crazy, crazier than normal with him threatening not only to kill Larry, but skinning the rat over their bed, which, Ugh. you know, I've seen this movie a million that times. So that scene out. is still like, it still grosses me out. <laughs> and how did Larry not realize that he was in the room? Uh, he was busy trying to diddle his wife. Okay. <laughs> Here, okay, can I just make one <laughs> overarching hole in this movie that sure, really bothered sure. me? Sure, what you got? <laughs> so, it's the room that Frank mm-hmm. is in. Frank's room. In this, it's not like it's the attic. No. It is on the second floor next to their bedroom. So I'm led to believe that Larry hasn't happened to go in that room and come across Frank. That part was like, 
how has he not noticed something going on? Why has he not explored that room to decorate it, or if you will? Like, that part really bothers I get that, and I can actually explain that. So, it's okay, actually, great. Frank's room is on the third floor, and a storage room that's got the cabinets and the other statues and things the like Jesus that. Okay. Second, yeah, the second floor is the bathroom and Julia and Larry's bedroom, and I'm assuming Kirstie's room that we never see. And then the first floor is like the kitchen and the, the dining room and stuff. Uh-huh. So I could see where if Larry went upstairs into that empty room, they're still unpacking. They don't know what they're going to do with it yet. Yeah. I'm sure Frank must have hidden. That's the thing about Frank. He doesn't kill these people on his own. He needs Julia to do it. So if his brother were to just walk in the room, he could just step behind one of these hide. brick partitions and hide. So okay, I don't know if that helps. I, I, that's fine. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's also one of those things where, like, <laughs> the the film sets up that for whatever reason, Frank doesn't go there. And so you just have to believe it, right? Even though in our logic, it doesn't make sense. But in the logic of the film, it does. I mean, at most, it could be, like, Larry doesn't go back there because his hand was bleeding so much and it was so traumatic. So now he associates that room with that trauma. Again, Larry being a little whiny baby about... Okay, guys, I think you're reaching. <laughs> Listen, I have not been in 20 years of therapy to not extrapolate upon things. <laughs> well, these are some characters that are super duper messed up and probably could use some of the therapy. Yeah. Oh, my God. So, Julia is going to bring home one last and final John for Frank. So, Frank won't kill Larry, but Kirsty sees this poor man. For me, there was this underlying sense of sadness in yeah. this movie. I felt for... The sadness of Larry and Julia's relationship, this disgusting house that they were in. This scene in particular where she brings home this nice guy who says, I get lonely sometimes. Yeah. And she just goes, everybody <laughs> Get over it. And then, and it, but it was just like this poor guy, he just wants a human connection. And then she kills, well, that his, his death scene is just really, really sad to me. And I hated yeah. it. Um, I saw the purpose of it, absolutely. But I was like, oh, God, you, you, one, you got, like, this guy who forced himself on her as the first victim, this nobody for a second. And, like, you're making a point about the third one being this nice guy. So it's like, oh, Julia's is badass. Oh, wait, no, she's Oh, yeah, evil. she's, she's like, super she's duper killing, evil. She's, she, and I did know she was evil, but, like, this, whereas after that second killing where I, I thought, oh, okay, cool. Like, she's, like, into this. After the third one, I'm like, you're horrible. This is terrible i feel for this man and his death was just so tragic to me especially because the hammer into the head did not work and he was just like oh it was just so sad to me i don't know ashley did you what did you think well i think in order for julia to she had already crossed a couple of thresholds by sleeping with frank and really enjoying it you know when quote-unquote polite society says women aren't supposed to like that right but after that first murder she is starting to give up more and more of her soul. And I feel like Frank is taking more and more of it. Right. And so it's not just that he needs Julia Mm. to kill these people to live, but he needs to take something from her, you know, and we see how little he Mm. cares for her when he ends up killing her and then just sucking everything out of her. She was always a means to an end. It was, I mean, did you think that was sad? Of course I did. Of course I did. But I like the flip between (laughs) You know, the asshole yeah. first guy who deserved it and Julia's reticence. And then kind of you get mm. to this point where this guy did not deserve it and one is an innocent. But Julia is now turned into the asshole. So she's killing people. Yeah. So, yeah, we do. We do lose our last our last sweet boy. But Kirstie now 
seeing what's going on. She sees that Julia is bringing home these Johns, and then Kirsty sees Frank, and we get our second iteration of Come to Daddy. Which I know you all, I know you all hate it. I can't help but say it that way. And he's got some other gross lines here that I love where he's like, some things have to be endured and that's what makes the pleasure so sweet. And I'm like, gross, but I love it. I wrote that down. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And Kiersey takes the box. She takes the lament configuration and bolts the hell out of there where she then wakes up into the hospital where, mm-hmm. spoiler, she'll be spending a lot of time for the next few movies. Okay, did anyone look at that hospital scene? And I was just like, oh my god. Maybe it's just the rate at which technology moves. But that, I swear, it looked like a hospital out of the 1960s. I'm like, was it supposed to? Was it supposed to be creepy? And is it foreshadowing her being locked up in, like, essentially sanitariums or mental hospitals, right? You know, where folks are going to be mistreated and given like the least technologically advanced things. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think they play weirdo videos of the flowers blooming in the nonsense in regular hospitals. So I feel like it was supposed to make you feel creepy or like make you feel off and like, but she's got the box and she solves it. She does. So I like that she just messes around with it. You can't help but play with it. It's very ginger and, Sweet. It's not something you bash into. It just kind of takes your mindless fidgeting hands to gently open this box. It it wants to be opened. Now we get the Cenobites for real. Mm-hmm. So the Cenobites are from a religious sect in hell known as the Order of the Gash. They're sort of like hell's bounty hunters for escaped prisoners. They are, as they say, explorers in the further regions of experience, demons to some, angels to others and in my research it looked like clive wanted to create monsters that could speak about their condition so we talked a bit about comparing this movie to the other horror films of the time that have also spawned franchises halloween nightmare on elm street friday the 13th being the big ones and when you look at a lot of those freddy aside a lot of the monsters don't talk about being Mm. a monster Clive said that this evil is is never abstract the way it could be portrayed in stalker and slasher movies. It's concrete, it's particular, and always vested in individuals. So I, I thought that was really fascinating when you're creating mm-hmm. a type of villain, and specifically yeah. villains for horror movies. So we get an introduction to Cenobites. We've got the female Cenobite, also known as Deep Throat on set. <laughs> which which is kind of great. She was inspired by scarification and body piercing from National Geographic articles. She's played by Grace Kirby, who refused to return for the sequel. She was replaced by another actress in the second mm-hmm. movie. And... Do we know why? She didn't like the makeup process. It looked painful. <laughs> it, yeah. took, it took a while, but... So, after the introduction of Deep Throat, we get the lead Cenobite. As I've mentioned before, he's... The icon known as Pinhead, played by Doug Bradley, who played him in eight of the ten films in the Hellraiser franchise. I can't believe it. I know, I know. The inspiration for that design came from punk fashion, Catholicism, and S&M clubs that Clive Barker visited in New York and Amsterdam, like the infamous Cell Block 28 in New York. Mm. And... Mm. Been there. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Pinhead wasn't his name. He was called lead Cenobite. At some point he was called Priest in the book, but Pinhead was just kind of the name that stuck. 
and took six hours to apply the prosthetic Cenobite makeup on Doug Bradley. We also get, mm. which I, Graham, I love that you called it the slug one. His name is oh, Butterball, yeah. which is even oh. great, better. <laughs> played by Simon Bamford. He also couldn't see. Oh, Just like the oh, chattering God. Cenobite played by Nicholas Vince, yeah. he also couldn't see. So when he sticks his fingers down Kirstie's throat, he couldn't see Ugh. what he was doing. He actually ripped part of her soft palate on the roof of her mouth. Oh, my God. Also, so, what was with all the fingers in mouth? I hope she had insurance. I don't. Yeah. I don't know. A lot of know. fingers. So we get our four baddies, and we'll eventually get the engineer, who is that upside down kind of crawling thing that you can see the tracks of the, of the character running on the ground, which I also love. And we get the uh, eternal line, we will tear your soul apart which is kind of what they did to Frank, and it didn't work. Interesting thought. I, I, I didn't see them as villains in this movie, though. I have that same thought. So, yeah. I don't think they were villains. I think... They did what they were supposed mm-hmm. to do. You opened the box, and we did what mm-hmm. you did. Like, you, you wanted this. And so they were almost just, like, demanding honor for what people who have used their device... If this is what you wanted, then we're giving it to you, and how dare you... That leave. is super true. I totally have the same thought until they come after Kirsty at the end. But in in all honesty, mm. Kirsty opened the box, so she deserves. I'm sorry it was an accident, but you she sure did. She, don't don't <laughs> play with things that aren't yours. You need a disclaimer on this box. <laughs> I would be like, um, so guys, so I just want to say like this is really confusing because like I thought it was a box we could play with. <laughs> I actually have two of those boxes in my house. Oh God, I wouldn't. Well, they don't them. open. The ones that open cost a lot more. I have ones that don't open. Yeah. Oh my God. Okay, so Kirstie makes a deal with the Cenobites to lead them to Frank. And now we get to Julie and Frank who are freaking out about Kirstie. And, you know, Frank, of course, is only concerned about getting himself a new skin. He doesn't give a fuck about Julia. Mm -hmm. And then Julia finally gives in. She gives the last bit of her soul away. And we say bye-bye to our sweet Larry. I'm glad we didn't see him murder. Me too. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's obviously it's implied when Kirsty gets home and her dad's <laughs> looks a little she different. Does. He's got that nice blood <laughs> around his, his hairline. Yeah, I know. And he's got that smirk. It looked like he had fuller cheekbones, too. Maybe because Frank had fuller cheekbones mm-hmm. and it's on his body. But I was, that if they had shown that, I would have been like, oh, no, this is too sad. <laughs> That's true. And I'm always impressed with Andrew Robinson's turn at playing both characters, because it is super yeah. duper clear mm-hmm. which one's Larry and which one's Frank. Yeah. And mm-hmm. of course, the first thing they do is fuck, obviously, because that's what Julia was waiting for. Although she, it's with her husband, I don't know. It's a lot of messed up stuff. It's a lot, but it's not his penis, right? I don't. I, I would assume that it's still part of the skin. Somebody get Clyde <laughs> on the phone. <laughs> So when she has sex with him, is it his penis is it or Frank's, Frank's penis? penis? <laughs> or is it Larry's penis? Or is it like the best of both? I mean... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is it two? It's just split into two. Oh my God. Just like <laughs> one half on each side? Yeah. Using Frank like a, switchblade. Like a Frankenpeen. <laughs> so now Julia's got everything she wants. She's, of course, in another perfect outfit. Larry's dead. Frank's got everything he wants. Then we get Kiersey showing back up, and we get our eternal line again. Do you want me to say the line? Obviously. Yes, fine. <laughs> no, wait, I want you guys to say it. I've said it twice. Come to <laughs> no. daddy! Oh my god, you make me I refuse. Come here! Come here! Come, Come here, here, girl! 
<laughs> What's up? How you doing? If gays wrote this. <laughs> and then we've got the line, so much for the cat and mouse shit, which is a great Andrew um, Robinson ad lib. That was pretty good. So do you think when Larry goes to stab, do you think he aimed for Julia on purpose? Because he's going to like kill yeah. Kirstie? I don't think he aimed on purpose, but I don't think he cared. He just wanted to kill someone and get blood, and he didn't care who it was. Because he showed no yeah. remorse. Yeah. There's nothing. He was just like, a death's a death. Because then he immediately sucked out her... Did he suck out her soul? Her blood. Is that what like, happened there? Or what, what was it? Like, I don't know. Blood and soul. It, it happened so quickly, too. Like I felt like there was there should have been more of a moment there between them but it was just like okay she's dead and then like throw her to the bottom of yep. the stairs yep we do get one more shot of julia but i've been to your to y'all's point to y'all's point he didn't know yeah, it was never no, about he her. did not he just it was about what he couldn't yeah, yeah, have yeah. so now we get a little frank in a larry skin suit running around trying to kill kirsty and we get another one of the gross special effects with the maggot john who she runs in runs into, I know, which is really, really gross. A lot of maggots they in this They were real maggots, and they had a maggot wrangler on the set. Come here, maggots. Here, maggot, 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 maggot. Lunch is at 12. Apparently, <laughs> Ashley Lawrence was sprayed with fake movie sweat. Clive Barker was throwing maggots at her, and they would stick to the fake movie set, like, down her shirt and oh stuff. God. And I'm like, Bleh. Oh, my God, I that hope she got paid disgusting. well. Disgusting. That's why I never became an actress. But in... <laughs> I, don't, I don't think she did, actually. <laughs> but in the ultimate turn... Kirsty has led the Cenobites straight to Frank. They act as the heroes at the end. They come to tear Frank apart. Now, something I wanted to ask you guys is the iconic line at the end. So, like I said, there's two iconic lines in this movie. Come to Daddy and Jesus Wept. Now, Jesus Wept was an ad lib, again, from actor Andrew Robinson. The line was supposed to be something like, fuck off just like a last line, mm -hmm. but Andrew Robinson wanted something more specific. And so Jesus wept is, is the line that he used. What do you guys think it means? I honestly rolled my eyes yeah. when he said it. I thought that the movie didn't earn mm -hmm. that line to me. I thought it was just a line. Okay, sure. I was just sort of like, okay, yeah, that's poetic. <laughs> but it didn't <laughs> fit, right? And if anything, I could see it was... Frank trying to be more meaningful. Just trying so hard. And it's just, we all went to film school. We know all those tryhards. It's a line that always kind of bothered me. One, because it, it seems like it is meant to be poetic and meaningful. But in my head, I've always struggled with it. I'm like, what does that, what does that mean? Is his body as if he's on a cross? I don't think so. I can't remember. No, I can't I, remember. I guess that would be my only thing. No, I don't, I don't think it, you know, there's a lot of Catholic imagery in this movie, but I don't think that it was supposed to be a crucifixion pose yeah. because he's got, yeah, at this point, the Cenobites have got Frank and his face has got all the hooks in it. His arms got all the hooks in it. I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, great yes. effects. Yes. I'll tell you that. Amazing. Uh, that was the part that I had my hands covering <laughs> my face and I was like, like, ah, ah, like that. <laughs> I'm so proud of you, baby Graham. Baby Graham. Uh, I made so it through. Good. I made so, it through. So, yeah. Graham wept. Oh. Graham wept. <laughs> <laughs> so, Frank gets torn apart. The Cenobites go after Kirstie because they have sights to show her. That's she opens the box. Yeah. And she solves the puzzle again, sends them all back to hell. Bye bye. 
She forgets about the engineer. Again, the big slug thing on the... Uh, who keeps, like, batting the... the, the... That... Her fight with I him know, was amazing. I, <laughs> I was like... She's just, like, batting it back and forth with the claws. This, like, slug. And I'm like, oh, God. She probably had fun. She's like, what the fuck am I recording right I know, now? <laughs> I know. I, I, I see that scene as the one where I'm just like, this is kind of silly. But deliciously. Oh, it's cheesy. so perfect. Like My favorite yeah. part is when she finally gets it back and is trying to do stuff and Steve tries to take it from her and do it and she just like shoves him aside and I was like, yes, I know, girl. I love that too. Yeah, she's like, no. Don't have a man try to do, no, you save yourself. Well, I thought she was, I thought she was protecting no, her. No, I think she was dismissing him. I did too. Like, let me do it. I can do it. I don't need a man to do this for me. Okay. I had that same thought. And then we send everybody back to hell. Kirstie and Steve, the world's most boring man, go to a random place and then throw the box in some fire. And then we get at the end, the keeper, AKA the cricket eating homeless man who reaches into the fire and grabs the box and turns into his true form, the demon from hell. Mm -hmm. Of course. Obviously. Sure. So, yeah, he's the one who basically <laughs> is kind of the purveyor of the box. He's also the one in the opening and closing scene in Morocco kind of saying the what's your pleasure, sir? Same character. Oh, that was the same guy. I thought he was, like, working nope, with him. Same guy because if you'll notice on the wall in both the opening and closing scene of the bar, you've got the man on the left who's offering the box, and on the wall is a image of a cricket. Okay. Okay, cool. <laughs> cool. Actually, about the special effects, too, it goes by really fast. It was a last-minute addition from Clive Barker. It was made super cheap. It's his least favorite part of the movie. And if you'll notice, it's a bunch of skull bits all kind of glued together. It was a an antelope skull with like horns that were stuck in its eyes that are kind of coming out. I mean, it looks kind of shitty the longer you look at it, but I like it. I like the last shot. I like. I thought that was a, a cool way to end it. Like, what's your pleasure? End credits. You know, and, and the cycle. And the cycle begins, begins again. Again. I legit thought it was Frank. I thought it was just gonna be this loop. No, oh. I'm sorry. It was someone else. And that is the end of the movie. But if you were worried that you wouldn't get any more, don't worry. As I've said before, there are a ton of Hellraiser films. You've got Hellraiser. Yep. This, this was Hellraiser in 1987. You've got Hellbound, Hellraiser 2 in 1988, which is fantastic. It continues the tragic love story of Frank and Julia, and I cannot recommend it enough. Does it also have the, like, electric 80s effects? Because I loved those. Yeah, it's got some really good skin suits, and it goes more into different boxes, and then kind of this doctor who is trying to figure out the box. I don't want to ruin it because it's fantastic, but I love, love, love that movie too. And then you get... Hellraiser 3, Hell on Earth, 1992. At this point, the production company was acquired by Dimension Films. I love this movie, but it is super duper of its time. You get some new Cenobites, like you get one with a bunch of CDs in his head, and you get a guy with a camera in his eye. If you want something real schlocky, you watch that one. And then you get Hellraiser Bloodline in 1996, which is friggin' god-awful. They Alan Smithy, the director, so he didn't even take the credit. And Adam Scott is in it. Huh. Uh -huh. How about that? And not even Adam Scott can save this movie. And don't forget Mr. Pinhead's Adventures <laughs> in Slumberland, which came no, out. That's like the cartoon Beetlejuice adaptation. And then Julie and Julia and Mr. Pinhead. <laughs> Hellraiser Julie and Julia would be so fun. That. <laughs> Delightful. Yeah, then you, get, you, know, you get a whole Delightful. bunch more over the next some odd years. The last one that... Ten. Yeah. Ten. Then you wow. get... The last one that came out was Hellraiser Judgment in 2018, which has a cameo 
by Heather Landingkamp, who is Ooh. everybody knows from Nightmare on Elm Street. And just the ten of us. Mm-hmm. Ashley has no idea who this person I, you is. You would Do you have know to show who Heather Landingkamp is. I mean, I have. She's the Heather Landingkamp. She's the main character in Nightmare on Elm Street. I have seen Nightmare on Elm Street. I did watch just the ten of us in the late eighties, early nineties. She was Marie Lubbock, the one who was a nun who wanted to be a she's nun. She's the girl, the the young girl in Nightmare. On I Elm can Street. barely remember most of the last amount of years i can remember <laughs> an amazing sandwich from 2006 but i can't remember those like characters and faces it's priorities priorities yeah. you also get a new villain in that one called the auditor he does your taxes he kind of does oh god katie are you serious mm-hmm. <laughs> that's so stupid so a remake has been bandied around a few times 2006 2007 2010 clive himself talked about a remake in 2013 but nothing has come of it until april 2020 there's a current possible remake by Spyglass Media with David Goyer producing and director David mm. Bruckner, who both worked on Nighthouse and the latter of which who directed parts of the horror movie VHS, which was fine. The Signal, some creep show. Ooh, creep show. Spyglass is also in talks to develop a reboot of 1996's Scream, and both films are owned by Dimension. I would be curious about a remake. I would probably watch yeah? it. Yeah, so would you guys watch this film again? You can say no. N- My no, heart won't be hurt. I would not. I would not. I appreciate it. And I see its influence for things that have come after it. But yeah, not my cup of tea. But Julia. Julia was worth the hour and a half, I think. Her, her character. So Julia's kind of the main character of the second movie. Would you ever watch the second movie? But she died. How could she come back? Oh, no. Baby? It's like a horror movie and death doesn't mean anything. <laughs> Except when it does. Despite Bob owning it and owning the book. I don't think I would rewatch it, but I would definitely watch a documentary on the practical special effects. There mm-hmm. are two documentaries, and it goes into kind of the creation of both the first Hellraiser and the second Hellraiser. So that kind of wraps up Hellraiser as the movie that I have seen the most. And next week, we get a bit from Ashley. Ashley, do you want to kind of talk about what listeners can expect for next week? Y'all prepare yourselves. For the masterpiece. <laughs> oh my god. That is the movie adaptation of the classic board game Clue. Oh, I'm so excited. Oh my god. Mm. I this movie, I watched it. I think it was like one of those Comedy Central would show it a lot. Movies I can't remember mm-hmm. exactly how I first saw it. But I love this movie so much that in college you know, like that first year of college, you become really fast friends with people because everyone's so desperate for connection or whatever. And when I was like, mm, yes. I feel like we're connecting <laughs> a little too quick. This doesn't feel real. I would ask their opinion. I'm like, what do you think of Clue? And that would be my litmus test. But you never asked me that question and we're friends. Yeah, but I didn't. Because we thought that you had I'm seen sorry. it. Yes. We didn't find out until recently that you've never seen it. Also, we had a genuine enough connection that I didn't, I didn't feel as though our friendship would be false. You passed the test of my heart with flying colors. <laughs> Well, thank you. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was pretty absurd. I'm excited to talk. I love um, Clue. I can't, I'm, I can't wait it. to watch it. I am super duper ready. I like Clue, the board game. Well, thank you guys for watching it and not judging me too much. I mean, we did. We did, but we love you. <laughs> We're supposed well, to. We you, love thank you. Thank you. I love you both, too. We said friendship is suffering. <laughs> that is true. Friendship <laughs> is suffering. Oh, well, thank you all for listening. And uh, yeah, please join us next week for Clue. All right, bye. 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 bye.
Let Me Introduce You is a podcast hosted by Graham Veth, Katie Kubert, and Ashley Crone. Music by Kevin McLeod. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0 License. Make sure to follow the Let Me Introduce You podcast on Instagram at Let Me Intro You Pod and on Twitter at Let Me Intro You.